Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me once again. Today, we have a a great guest, someone who's been around the business for quite some time and a wonderful experience across different parts of um, government and information technology. But we'll come to her in a moment because we are going to go back to the definition of exactly what content communication is because it is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So there you go. That's what we're talking about today. And we are talking about that topic today with Patricia Duffy. Now, Pat is a great friend of mine and also someone who has had widespread experience, probably 30 plus years working in marketing and general management in information technology, telecommunications, financial services, defence and more broadly in government. She's worked in B2B, in B2C. She had a very senior marketing role with Telstra, which is the national telecommunications carrier here in Australia. But more recently has spent probably the better part of about a decade helping the Australian Defence Force recruit the right men and women into the services. And so we are going to talk to her about that as well. But probably more interestingly as well, today is Pat's first day on the job here at Content Group. So uh, welcome, Pat, to uh, to the Content Group team. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's nice for you to come along and join us and, and join the, the Content Group as we sort of continue to march on this journey. I look forward to working with you over the you know weeks and months and years ahead. Thank you. Yeah, so listen, um, looking at your particular experience, how about you, you take us back and give us the, the Pat Duffy story? Where are you My from, goodness Pat? Me. Well, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, but kind of by way of the US Army. My dad was actually a career Army officer in the US Army, and I came to Australia... Straight from Germany, where my father had his last posting. <laughs> Not from Nashville, Not straight from, from Nashville, Germany. Straight from Germany, where I actually went to university. I attended the University of Maryland ah. in, in Germany while I was living there with my dad and okay. then came out to Australia. So University of Maryland has the university mm-hmm. for the American um, Absolutely right, yeah. Ah. yeah. Still to this day? As far as I'm aware, they okay. do, yeah. Right. It used to be very widespread. It's probably less so now with okay. budget cuts and everything, but yeah. 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 And then I came out here. So right. I came out here as a bit of a sprog uh-huh. and, um, I, you know, I came out here with a terrible degree, a Bachelor of Arts in sort of next to nothing and no idea of what I wanted to do. I was really young. I was 20 when I got to Australia yeah. and was very, very lucky to, you know, just in responding to job ads, basically to meet a group of South African Australian IT entrepreneurs who had started a business in South Africa and then brought it over here. And they were more interested in potential than in um, kind of experience and whatever. So I joined them as a very junior marketing type person and kind of grew up from there. What company was that? It was called Sigma Data Corporation. It's long out of business, but they distributed US products and um, were partly owned by a US defence contractor. Okay. 
And then I joined another Australian distrib distributor organisation called the Lionel Singer Corporation. Right. Now, for old people like me, Lionel was a legend in the Australian IT industry, and I was with him for about eight or nine years, and we, at one time or another, distributed everything that was hot. We had Sun Microsystems, we okay. had, you know, all those sorts of things, and it, they were fabulous years. So was that a sales sort of role? No, it was a marketing role. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> but marketing meant something quite different then in the IT industry. It was, you know, obviously it was B2B. But, um, yeah, they were. It, it, it was great. And I got to do almost everything because they were both startups when I joined them. So I got to do contract negotiation with software providers and inventory management and pricing, you name it. Yeah. But interestingly, um, content is really as old as the hills. You know, it's, it's sort of been repackaged, um, probably repositioned because of the ability of technology, which is now means that we can all be in the publishing business, whether a brand or a not-for-profit or a government agency, department, whoever it is. But when you think back to those times, what role did content play in that B2B process when you were working for, for Lionel and for Sigma Data? Well, let me tell you something about Lionel. I mean, he was a legend because he actually had the first um, television advertising for a computer in Australia. Okay. And his TV star was Tom Baker, who was one of the early Doctor Whos. Okay. Yeah, you might remember, David. Come on, don't <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, that explains <laughs> it. But uh, and Lionel had been an accountant. I mean, he just had a knack. But if you think about what content meant in those days, today we think think about content in a very kind of technology base, you know, with content distribution and curation and so on. But content was important back then. It's just that it took the form of brochures and presentations and, you know, and, and that sort of thing. But content's always been important because you can't convey whatever it is you're trying to convey to a potential, you know, client or user or whatever without some delivery of content. Yeah, and it's interesting at the moment, we're doing a, quite a few consulting projects into the to the federal government and there is this notion at the moment that content is digital mm -hmm. and they, they're not, and we're saying to them and saying, well, yeah, it's, it is, but it's also offline as well. It's about that face-to-face -face engagement, it's about public relations, it's about, you know, the content is the content is the content, as in that sort of atomic particle of the story, but it can be distributed through offline and online channels. So trying to get people to think of content as a non-digital is, is quite an interesting challenge at the moment because, again, websites and and content seem to live as much in ICT as they do in the communications areas. Look, if you look at the blurring between the kind of CIO and the CMO in organisations, yeah. it's quite amazing. I mean, to me, digital's massively important, but it's a distribution channel of content. It's not content itself. Um, you know, we distribute digital content, but we also distribute lots of other types of content. Yeah. And, I, you know, back in the day, way back in the day, back when dinosaurs roamed the <laughs> earth, I used to actually write um, stories for a US-based IT magazine, user stories, just interesting things that we were doing down here yeah. with, you know, with, like case with products and so on. Case studies, absolutely. Right. And um, so, yeah, content's always been there. We probably didn't call it that. You didn't think about it as content. No. But that was, you know, that was what it was. Yeah, it's interesting. I do tell this story and I have told it a few times before on the podcast that when we started Content Group back in 1997, this was the idea. I, I was lucky enough to get a voluntary redundancy out of the ABC. So I had a bit of money to sit around in my pyjamas and grow a beard and <laughs> um, with my dial up at the time, you know, and I was tooling around and, you know, looking into the future and understanding that there was this notion that one day, you know, there was this going to be this, the information superhighway, if you remember that, sure. and this notion that we were all going to carry around you know, supercomputers in our pockets and we were going to receive... We do know, now. ...media-rich files. That's right. But it, interestingly, back then, you, I would... So I was like, okay, the content group, that's what we're going to do, you know, mix of journalism and marketing. 
And anyway, I would hand out the business cards, like, you know, the content group, and people would go, well, well that's nice, the, the content group. <laughs> there was never – there were, back then there was – it wasn't a thing. When do, when do you think content became a thing? Certainly in the last decade, I think. I don't think we talked about content it much prior never to content, that. Was yeah. It? Yeah. But it is now. Yeah. It, it, it's a huge thing. And it sits at the heart of um, an organization's capability, mm-hmm. I believe, to achieve its objectives because it is about that story. It's mm-hmm. about building the audience. It's about, it's about building connecting. trust over time. Yeah. Because yeah. the only way you can do that really is through the effective mm-hmm. distribution of content. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, your your career then, so out of IT and then into telecommunications. Telecommunications, okay, yeah, which is sort of allied. Well, no, I went to Optus first okay. and, and then to Telstra, which was an unusual okay. path back in Optus those days. Optus for everyone who's not um, from not from Australia. Um, Singtel, the, the Singapore national carrier, mm-hmm. that's the Australian branded version of, of yeah. Singtel. Yeah? yeah, when Optus started in Australia, it was off the back of a telecommunications monopoly by Telstra. The government decided yeah. to deregulate well, not deregulate, but to open it up to competition. And Optus, as it was then, was not owned by Singtel. Oh, it was it? No, it was owned in Who was part... owned by? Well, I'll tell you, David. I'm glad <laughs> you asked that question. It was owned by Bell South, which was one oh, of the baby okay. bells. Baby it was owned bells, by Cable yeah, right. and Wireless out of the UK. And it was owned by a consortium of Australian businesses who... Maine Nicholas was one, AMP was one, I can't remember. Businesses that had a massive oh. appetite for some competition in the telecommunications environment. Right. And it was, you know, it was a greenfields environment. It was exciting. Content was absolutely, although we didn't call it that, mm-hmm. critical because we didn't have anything, you know, to begin with. I mean, no service, no customers, no nothing. So you basically were telling people what you were going to do. But I chose to go to Telstra and in many respects it was the best move I ever made because I got in... Um, while it was still fully government-owned, so it had migrated already from telecom to Telstra, but it was pre the beginning of privatisation. Mm. And um, it's interesting, when I think back, and I had a very big marketing team, so I covered all the marketing functions, I mean, PR, sponsorship, events, advertising, direct marketing, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, we we used to, once the first tranche of, of shares had been sold, we used to get together every Friday and talk about, well, what did you do this week to create shareholder value? And that was, you know, I'm talking about sort of in the early 90s. People didn't really talk about marketing in those terms. It was much more about advertising and that sort of thing. But we were very focused on what were we doing to grow the business. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. But, you know, again, content, although we didn't call it that, was key to what we did. And how did you measure whether or not you were creating value? Well, you had fewer sophisticated tools back then to be able to do it. We certainly didn't have, for example, the the digital channels now that are quite accountable, you know, in terms of what sort of results you're getting. But we could tell, I'll give you just a a simple example that's going to sound really kind of strange now, but if we ran promotions, talk as long as you like to Hong Kong this weekend for $2, we could count the network minutes that we generated and we could compare them to previous weekend's, you know, network minutes and you could say, well, that was a success. Yeah. So very practical. Well, that's very practical. Very, very practical, you know, sort of of things that you could do. So you're Mm. basically promoting services, looking at the growth in those services or the growth in revenue attached to those services, Mm. always looking for new ways of driving value out of existing services. How important was it to adopt that mentality of, of testing and, and learning? Because ex- essentially what you were doing there was having a hypothesis, you know, creating a test, running the experiment and then evaluating whether or not it was, which is essentially what we need to do in content marketing, yeah. is to continually to assess what is going to be the best 
channel or t- piece of content or the time of the day or whatever format it is and then work out, you know, did that work or, or didn't it work? Well, you had a lot less ability again to do it then because the tools just didn't exist. So, mm. you know, if you were doing broadcast advertising, for example, I mean, you relied on ratings information and tarps and that sort of thing, you know, to say, well, we reached who we intended to reach. Mm. Um, I would say you know, that we did that type of evaluation poorly because of the sorts of tools that we had available and the limited ability to test and learn. Testing and learning was a lot more expensive then than it is now. If you were talking about big campaigns, you know, now, I mean, you literally can test and learn in real time. You can put stuff out there if it doesn't work and you can tell if it's working by the engagements that you're getting with your content or whatever. You can take it down, put put something else up. You can... um, dissect your audience a lot more granularly so that you can target different messages. To, well, you know this. I don't have to tell you this. Sure. So, you know, I would say that we did it as well as you could back then and we're constantly looking at ways to improve. And you relied on research a lot, yeah. qualitative and quantitative. Yeah. And, you know, it's a blunt kind of way of evaluating things, but you did what you could. Yeah. Well, I remember when I started my career, which was with 3M, the Minnesota mining manufacturer, and I worked in the video cassettes and audio cassettes industry. There you go. I'm dating myself there. That was at the time. It was quite interesting. It was the battle between beta and VHS. And uh, I was... VHS won the home market, you know, the Panasonic format of VHS. And so all of the big tape manufacturers were, um, were here in Australia competing for, you know, because it was going... Everyone knew it was going to become a commodity product... Um, but 3M and a few of the others couldn't hold their breath long enough and um, you know dialed, dialed out of the market. But interestingly, back in those days, working with the advertising agencies, they wouldn't do anything unless they had research. And then the research was so wickedly expensive. It was like, really? Are you going to cost us that much money? And they wouldn't stand behind any sort of choice or decision unless they had the research. You know, that, that is an interesting one. I mean, we do, marketers do rely on research. I've often thought that you over-rely on it because it's a way of not having to make a call. Hmm. But I'll give you just one example. I'll tell you a story. So here's a bit of content for you from back <laughs> in the Optus days. Bob Mansfield was the chief executive. Bob I remember had, Bob. You would do. Yep. Um, I mean, a fabulously energetic, you know amazing kind of guy but we wanted to position ourselves in a brand sense as the kind of not Telstra not Telstra yeah and yeah. and kind of IBM in blue jeans quite okay. literally so we we filmed a series of commercials that used our own staff but in very casual clothes and doing kind of you know making human pyramids and Whatever, and <laughs> I, I, I would have sworn that that would be a successful campaign. I would have yeah. absolutely sworn but it. But was there insights? Was there research? No, into no, this? It, we, we, this no, was it's... this was hunches and, okay. and, and, and who we thought we were. Yeah. Um, and Bob saw it and he said, absolutely not. He said, if you want to run that, you have got to take it to research. We're like, oh, and the ad agency was really confident as well. No, this is great. So yeah. we took it to research and it failed miserably because it was not the way people wanted to think of their service provider. Right. They were happy for us to be young and carefree and what, but they wanted us to be serious about delivering service. So you, you can get it wrong and research can be useful, but I one of the phrases that kind of sends my blood pressure up is, well, the research says. Yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, I know yeah. what the research says, but tell me some of the other things that we know as well. And, of course, again, our ability to analyse behaviour and understand what goes on in a customer journey and, and so on is so much better now yeah. that you can... And you, and you can test hunches in real time yeah. and very, very inexpensively without destroying relationships or anything like that. It's funny though, isn't it, the advertising agencies, I'll I'll never forget, I was early in my career and um, we'd go down to the advertising agency, I won't mention who they were, 
but they were so nice to us, you know, and, you know, there were always chocolate biscuits and then they'd take us out to lunch and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And I remember saying to my boss at the time, saying, these advertising agency people, they're so nice, aren't they? Look at they're so generous and all the rest of it. And he said, ah, you're paying for all of this. I was like... Where? And he goes, don't worry, it's there. It's on your bill somewhere. That I used actually... to think about that, David, in, in the Telstra days when we used to see our lawyers, which was almost all the time because we were always in court with Optus over, you know, one thing or another. Sometimes we won, sometimes we didn't. But um, you'd go into, you know, the, the, the big end of town offices yeah. where they've got butlers and silver service <laughs> and whatever and people would be, oh, my God, look at the, you know, harbour views in Sydney. Um, yes, but we're paying for this. <laughs> you know, I mean, I can actually afford to take myself out to coffee. I don't really, anyway. Yeah, I know what you mean. Indeed. But listen, what are some of the things that you learnt in that early part of your career that you know to be true today? You know, let, let's put all of the tools and technologies to one side. What are the things that people need to know and understand that will sit at the heart of effective content communication? Relationships matter. So the relationship that you build with the people that you are ultimately going to, you know, sell to or engage with or whatever it happens to be is really, really important and you can't break trust. And that is not a new concept. I mean, you could go back to the beginning of time. But then, you know, that's really what if you, content distribution, in my view, is about it's telling your constituents, you know, whether it be citizens in a government context or potential customers or potential candidates in a Defence Force recruiting context, telling them things about yourself, about, you know, your offering, about stories, you know, whatever it happens to be, so that they start to get insight, so that they start to trust you, so that they want to get closer to you, I mean that somewhat abstractly, of course. I mean, no, I'm sure. talking about a telco and you know, and customers. And I will say this: in the days that I was at Telstra, I left mid '99. Um, we actually saw the brand go from being a you know kind of a tolerated brand. You know, in you know, David, in research terms, you talk about the sort of fat uncle in the corner at the, that everyone's a little bit fond of, but nobody <laughs> much wants to take anywhere. Sort of thing, you know, food on his tie. We became a brand that people both liked and respected, yeah. and we were a brand that was ranked up in those days with Qantas and people like that. And that was as a result of really thinking about what sort of relationships you want to have and then being true to that. Back in those days as well, we did a lot of work to simplify pricing plans and stuff like that. Again, they've they've um, they've been recidivists. They've backslid into a much more opaque, you know, kind of yeah. pricing and stuff like that. But we really worked hard to make things easier for people so that they felt comfortable about having an enduring relationship with us, particularly as competition opened up on more and more fronts. And how, how important was in that mix um, that face-to-face -face engagement with people and that, you know, being able to create that human connection? Because I... I worry these days that with, you know, the ubiquitous nature of connectivity and devices that, you know, we default to, well, hang on, let's just knock something up and get it out there. And we get away from that, you know, that ability, that face-to-face -face ability to be able to create those human connections. Because I know the Content Marketing Institute, their research comes out every year and the number one content marketing uh, tactic is face-to-face -face communication, be it at an event or an education or somewhere where you can create a human connection. So how important is that to make sure that you're considering creating human interaction as well as having a, you know, a solid, you know, digital publishing program to support your, you know, particular ambition? Look, I think it's important, but you've also got to be realistic. So again, if you think about a Telstra where you, you know, your customer base included six, six and a half million households, for example, you cannot have 
a face-to-face -face connection with every single person. But what you can do is provide physical points of presence where people can engage with you. And that's why Telstra's got retail shops and back in those days had phone boxes, and, you know, th yes. pl places where you could actually sort of see, even exchanges, telephone exchanges, as silly as it sounds, we used to open them up and take journalists through and show them stuff that was coming down the, the pike so that they could then tell the story on our behalf, you know, to people. In a business context, obviously, it's much more important for people to be, to be able to engage directly with people, you know, so that they know that you're trying to understand their business problems and then coming up with solutions to solve them. Mm. But again, today, you know, we have an ability to kind of simulate people-to-people um, -people contact a lot better than we could then. You know, back then, that was one of the reasons that you relied on broadcast television advertising, for example. It was a way of portraying your, you know, core values and so on to a mass audience. Mm. So, you know, today, as I say, with social media, with the ability to do things like we're doing now, with the ability to create video content that you could distribute to large numbers of people, you can simulate sure. that person-to-person -person contact. And just another sort of broader uh, contextual issue really is this move, you know, this move to personalisation, this narrowness that we're going well and truly from the broadcast era to the narrow cast era and that, you know, the, they talk about the audience of one. What's your view about that of, uh, and, and the challenge of being able to, you know, create a, a content program offline and online that, that deals with that very challenge of being useful and relevant and valuable to a specific niche? Look, this is going to sort of sound like a cop-out, but in a way it depends on who you are. So if you are a very broadly based, um, you know, marketer, let's say, like a Telstra or a Singtel or whoever, our bank, you know, whatever it happens to be, you're going to have to do a bunch of things. You're going to have to have some broad reach and then you're going to have to have some very narrow reach. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and maybe this is just because of the background that I've got. It's hard for me to see how you can build a brand in a mass audience through audiences of one. Yep. So you build your brand to a mass audience, but you engage with your customers through an audience of one. And, you know, what you hope to do then is to have really, I sound so jargony, but, you know, really relevant sort of connections so that you're giving people yep. access to things that they're going to value. You know what I find, take Google as an example. I mean, I don't know about you, David, but I would use Google 5,000 times a day. <laughs> and what I love about, you know, we, if you think about the kind of history, the evolution of Google, it's amazing how today the searches that you do, you do a subsequent search and it remembers what you searched for before. Yeah. So, you know, it's giving you more and more and more relevant yeah. search results. And you don't actually have to tell it very much to get quite relevant search results because it's looking at, you know, kind of a history of search. So uh, audience of one is, or audience of some, as opposed to everyone, is mm. really, really important. But it contextually, you know, there are going to be organisations that need to reach lots of people mm. and they will continue to use, you know, broadcast mechanisms or whatever it happens to be to do that as well as to, you know, then take people, depending on where they are in their buying cycle or whatever it happens to be, you know, down more individual paths. Mm. So, and one more question actually around before we jump into a, a bit of a narrower conversation around, you know, content in recruitment, uh, given your experience with Defence Force recruitment. Um, but what about the march of the machines? What about artificial intelligence, smart machines, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, you know, that, that sort of trend? Um, What's your view, sitting well, at it and looking at it and thinking, hmm, I wonder what this means? Look, from I, I'm now thinking purely from a defence recruiting context. Okay. Those technologies are really important because they allow defence to give experiences to people 
that they couldn't otherwise get. So you think about it. If you're thinking about joining the army, let's say, unless you grew up in an army family, in an army town, or you've got close mates in the army, or maybe you were a cadet or whatever, which isn't really a proxy for the army, you don't really know what to expect. And to try and round people up and take them to bases and establishments and, you know, and it, it, it's a very difficult way to do anything at scale. Things like augmented reality and virtual reality and so on give you the ability mm. to give people those experiences at scale. And have they so been successful? It, it's new, yeah. um, but there's been um, applications rolled out to each of the 16 recruiting centres around the country and, yeah, they are really successful. Now, they are talking to people that are already in the recruiting centre, so they're at least interested, but they've also taken them out to exhibitions schools, and you know, to schools, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah. the various things that the various military members particularly go around, you know, several hundred of them around the country in the interest of recruiting, yeah, they're, they're successful and they will continue to be. And is it more cost-effective for the Australian Defence Force to have something like that than to try and take a helicopter out to a school or, you know, take kids on a ship visit? Or Yeah, yep. it's a lot more cost-effective. Mm. There's still a role for those very, very personal experiences, but that's a great way of, de of delivering experiences at scale. How... Just getting on to defence recruiting now, we might just have a conversation around that. How big a, a challenge is it or opportunity um, and indeed through the communication, through the content, what, what is the problem that you, you're looking to solve there? I think, and, you know, you might get a different view if you spoke to um, somebody who's more on the operational side, you know, actually doing the, the actual recruiting, but everybody ha the, the the awareness of the navy army and air force is incredibly high right but the understanding is actually quite low exactly as i said to you okay. unless you grew up in a garrison town or you know in a family you, you don't really know what to expect and then defense makes it harder for people because their job titles are kind of arcane and you know you you, you can't really relate what does that mean to a civilian job or whatever else and then there is the problem of stereotypes and misperceptions so and I could take you in some detail if we yeah. had time and if you wanted to, no, no, you know, with, with each of the services. Well, if you think about the Navy, yep. a large problem, if you like, for the Navy, if I can characterise it like that, is that people don't really know what you would do if you were in the Navy. And don't most, know what you'd do if you went on a ship. No, and most of what happens is over the horizon. You don't see people doing things in the Navy. And, you know, so they don't know. And, and people who don't know, they don't know how long you would go to sea for. They think that every job in the Navy involves going to sea for unspecified but undoubtedly very long periods of time away from your family and friends. So the likelihood is that you would be lonely and, you know, and, and, and. Mm. So from a communications perspective, um, the work that we did at Defence Force Recruiting was to break down those misperceptions because they are misperceptions. Yes, people do spend time at sea. They spend a lot more time on land. It depends on what their job is. But I think the core of it is that in the Navy... You might be away from your family and friends, but you're with your Navy family and friends. And they really do work as a team. And so we anchored all of our communication around the notion of teamwork. So so if you look at it, you know, the traditional funnel, so you're taking someone walking in saying, you know, they've done their basic research about what it is, how would you use content to be able to drive people from interest all the way through to I've signed up? Well... I think that when we formed the social media team at Defence Force Recruiting and, and did it in a very defence-like way, very cautiously to begin with, started with a Facebook page, you know, whatever. If you look at, um, De at Defence Force Recruiting's use of social media today, it's quite sophisticated. Yeah. And it very much is about not overburdening people at the beginning of consideration with too much. It's trying to attract them. And, you know, sometimes 
it's senior sirs, as we call them, will say, oh, you're making it look too good. You know, it's like, well, yes, but we're trying to just, <laughs> we're, you know, we're not going to press gang them. We're just trying to attract them to go to the next stage of research. And then it's about delivering relevant content as people move through. So, you know, I mean, things like what happens when you go through the recruiting process? People want to know that. And they don't want to find out by going through the recruiting process. They kind of want to have an idea. What's involved in doing that particular job? Well, the best way to demonstrate what's involved in doing that particular job, other than letting them accompany somebody, which is hardly practical for a, for a host of reasons, is by showing them. So content delivery to show people that's what that job entails, that's what the recruiting process looks like, that's what this hardware looks like. It's massively important. And mm. this is where, you know, technology has been an absolute blessing. The ability to create amazing content, because let's face it, defence is amazing, and then to distribute it um, in, you know, at, at mass, at scale, but a, a, again, you know, down to very small audiences mm. is really good. And then, you know, when you kind of couple that with the insights that technology has been able to de deliver. I'm, I'm going to interrupt myself. I'm going to tell you another little story. So one of the measures that we use in Defence Force Recruiting is propensity. What's the likelihood of the target audience, so 16 to 24-year-olds, to consider joining the ADF? And propensity mm -hmm. is measured in a very traditional fashion, research. Mm -hmm. So it's a monthly instrument that goes out to a randomly selected group of people and asks a bunch of questions. But the kind of wash-up of it is propensity. And it's, what, a, it's a KPI. What, what impacts propensity? Hosts of things, both good and bad. Um, so communications has a massive impact on propensity, as we demonstrated over a long period of time. Yeah. Advertising, comms, content distribution and so on. Bad news has a negative impact on propensity. Yep. Own goals, you know, stories yep. of atrocities scandals, and scandals and so on. Yep. But the great thing about the Navy, Army and Air Force is they are very resilient brands. I mean, we're talking about brands that people largely want to be proud of. You know, whether it's arm's length to you or not, you kind of want to feel good about your Navy, Defense. Army and Air yep. Force, yeah. Mm. But... Um, so if, if I go back to when I joined Defence Force Recruiting, which yep. is now it is exactly 10 years ago. In fact, it's 10 years ago today, would you believe? Oh, yeah. Good. So I've been gone for six months, David. My goodness <laughs> me. Um, the propensity, overall propensity amongst that 16 to 24 year old cohort was about 22, 23%. And Defence mm -hmm. had a goal of 40%. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, we will never get to 40%. How can you possibly expect that four out of 10 16 to 24 year olds would be serious about They might say, oh, yeah, you know, I might consider it, but would be serious about joining Defence. We lowered the KPI, but we then got smarter. And what we realised was you can't really look at it at that audience en masse no. because you've got people that are really, really keen. There's a big difference in age group, a big difference in gender, a big difference in geographic distribution. So regional kids who've got, been to boarding school and yeah. things like that are more likely so to that, seriously consider. So that cohort consider. of 16 to 24 yeah. doesn't exist. Uh, you break it down yeah. in, in a variety of Which ways. Which again goes back to this Absolutely. notion of, of narrowness, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. So we did a segmentation of the 16 to 24-year-old base and then went further with that to try and actually match segmentation with media buying sort of sure. science, you know, so that you could actually and, target. And, and how, how how many personas, categories, whatever it is that seven. you produce? Seven. Mm -hmm. Inside the 16 to yeah. 24. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And I couldn't tell you what... The, oh, I could tell you one of them, which was adventure and excitement seekers <laughs> who have the highest propensity of all. And if yeah. you look at Defence Force recruiting advertising, up until probably the last three or four years, it clearly played to that audience. You yes. know, it made everything look very fast-paced and very, you know, yeah. hardware-focused and yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but there are other cohorts who are would be great acquisitions. So people, I can't remember what we call, oh, leadership 
challenge or something like that. People who want to be leaders but don't quite know what that means. And so, you know, making them aware of the fact that there are great management and leadership opportunities in the Defence Force that you get trained to do. You know, you don't expect to arrive sort of fully formed, but they will train you to... to do those jobs. The bean counter inside of my head go, oh, this is expensive. You know, when you start to segment, when you start to go into these high, you know, yielding, you know, particular segments, uh, is it expensive? Well, segmenting is actually less expensive than, you know, the kind of broad, you know, broadcast message to yeah. a whole bunch of people, many of for whom it's not relevant. Right. So segmenting is actually cost effective. Yeah. Well, it depends though. If, uh, it depends how much you're putting behind each of those segments though, isn't Well, it? yes, it does. So one of the things that we did was we identified the seven segments and then we said, okay, well, there's four of them that we're not going to worry about it. at the yeah, moment. Sure. So we're going to okay. look at, you know, adventure and excitement seekers. Do we really need to keep investing in them? We don't really. They're attracted anyway. They're there. So yeah. you're going to keep a level of engagement, but it's not going to be, you know, and again, I mean, it won't be as obvious to you perhaps as it is to me, having lived and breathed it for nine and a half years, but we did change the way that we advertised. It became somewhat quieter and more thoughtful and more cerebral yeah. in some ways, you know, so that you're sort of appealing to, to different things and then broadening your mass appeal out into these other segments and then, of course, your content distribution can be much more yes. singular and specific and so on. And that's not an expensive strategy. No. Well, it's much less, much less expensive than buying, you know, national television. It also doesn't take as long to do. I mean, when you're doing, you know, TV campaigns, I think there's still a role for them. I mean, I've got yeah. a fondness. I miss the good old days. I miss the days when you could yeah. roadblock, as we used to call it, a Sunday night. You'd yeah. the three commercial networks <laughs> and the movies and you did your advertising for the week. Yes. Yeah, you because know, you reached everybody in Australia. Those yeah. days are kind of gone. <laughs> um, but... Yeah. I think there's still a role, you know, for broadcast yeah. advertising. But, if, again, if you look at a, a Defence Force recruiting kind of model, because the audience is not exclusively but largely a, a young audience. Now, one of our insights move in, you know, two or three years. Yeah, 16 to 24 is kind of a sweet spot, but there are heaps of people in the 25 to 39-year-old age group who are interested in joining the ADF. And they are interesting people because they've got life experience, they've got skills, they've got transferable skills. A lot of people in that age group are thinking, especially in the sort of 30s, if I'm ever going to make a change, now's the time to do it. So we started doing a different type of communication to those people that was obviously going to, you know, make them understand why they could come into the ADF and have a fabulous, rewarding second, third, fourth career. And did that work? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, from the perspective of recruiting officers, there was a lot of, I guess, toing and froing over the years with the services. You'd get some groups who'd say, oh, no, we want to get them really young and train them up. But you'd get the really young ones and they never made it through officer selection boards yeah. because they didn't really have the kind of life experience and so on. So targeting slightly older people has been much more successful. So what are some of the translatable lessons that you have from that experience uh, at Defence Force recruiting that people might be able to incorporate in their their daily work as uh, well, content communicators? Well, Defence Force recruiting is quite specific, but I, I, I would say one thing. Um, I hope I'm not answering this too obliquely. One of my observations since being involved in recruiting, and I mean, I never had been other than, you know, with Defence Force recruiting, but it's a big chunk of my career, is that I've had the opportunity to go to a lot of HR conferences, talent management conferences, recruiting type conferences, and been somewhat surprised that the HR people 
don't see themselves as being, in my view, the very close first cousins, you know, at the very least that they are with marketing. They kind of see themselves as apart from marketing. Yeah. I'm kind of like, well, hang on a second. If you're building a brand or, you know, creating a brand position, that's massively important both to your existing employees and to, you know, future prospective employees. So everything that you do, <laughs> everything that you do in, 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 a, in a branding and brand type context has got to be cognizant of all stakeholders, not just prospective customers. You know, I think sometimes about... You take an advertising campaign like Coles, you know, down, down, prices are down. Yeah. And I kind of think, well, is that a good kind of employee branding proposition? <laughs> but stop. I'm going to give it the benefit of doubt. I'm going to say, well, at least what it shows... I'm thinking about the TV ads. I'm sure there's other stuff. At least it shows people who appear to be enjoying their work, who appear to be customer service oriented, who appear to want to do the right thing. That's not so bad. You know, so it's not the down-down bit, it's the kind of, you know, it's the personas that they're using to convey those messages. That's interesting because I know that the IT people don't like marketing and communications people. Finance people definitely don't like marketing. And now you're telling me HR doesn't like us either. Nobody likes us. <laughs> well, no, that's not true, David. Everybody, everybody's envious of us because they think we have all the fun, quite seriously. And, and this is a fault of marketers. Um, we... You know, they think it's all care and no responsibility. Oh, well, it's all right for you guys. You're off yeah. swanning around, shooting things and doing this and doing that. You've yeah. got no actual skin in the game. And that's why I, that conversation that we used to have at Telstra every Friday afternoon, what did you do to drive shareholder value this week? Those That, that thinking is so incredibly important for marketers. As I said, the, the convergence of IT and marketing yeah. is incredible. I mean, marketers cannot do their jobs without close relationships with their IT departments. Some chief marketing officers, if we can call them that, are spending as much on IT as their IT yeah. counterparts. Yeah. You know, So uh, these things are all coming together. It's not a competition. I, I think that's the other thing is that everybody needs to keep in mind. We're not competing. I mean, you do compete for corporate resources, I suppose. Yeah. But everybody actually should want the same thing and you do have to integrate the functions in an organisation to be successful. You, you do, but in, in traditional organisations, it's still we're still very much early days in everyone sort of playing nice with each other because... I, I think that... I, I think each function brings that on itself uh, to a certain extent. So you look at IT, I mean, the the absolute deliberate use of, of jargon designed to keep everybody out. Yes. You know, now I'm lucky I spent 20 years in IT, so I'm like, you can't fool me, right? <laughs> well, you can, in fact, but... Um, but marketers, you know, bring a lot of it on themselves by, yeah. by saying marketing when what they're thinking is advertising, for example. You know, marketing Correct. isn't Correct. advertising. Correct. Advertising is another way of getting a message out to people that you want to engage with, whether it be citizens in a government context, candidates in a recruiting context, mm. customers in a commercial context. Yeah. It's exciting times, isn't it? I, 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 you know, I, I do enjoy, you know, the discussions. And I think now I think there is much more capability for communications people to have that conversation around value where you can take um, and demonstrate value by, you know, various calculations that you can make. So the conversations that you can have where previously we've struggled to get into those conversations because really the numbers have been, you know, rubbery. They haven't really held weight with finance or IT people, whereas I think it's much easier now to have those conversations where we can relate our activity directly to the accomplishment uh, or not, of business objectives. But as long as we can tie our activity and measure uh, the signals that we can get from our activity driving towards particular business objectives, I think we're on safe ground and I think we're in better shape than we've been ever. 
Look, I agree with you. You know, it's interesting. I mean, if you kind of be, just for a moment, be a bit of a student of advertising, let's say. So go back 50 or 60 years, way before my time, I hasten, <laughs> hasten to point out. But you think back, like, to when George Patterson started in Australia, which must be the best part of 85 years ago now. Yep. Of course, it's now almost it's gone as a brand. In fact, it's now just Y&R. But um, George Patterson himself, he was best friends with managing directors of big, you know, Proctors and Gamble and, you know, whatever, these companies. And these companies took advertising very seriously. Now, it was a much simpler world back then, so to be able to get people aware of your product, you had to advertise to them. Yep. Then you went through the more rational, you know, sort of period where people, oh, this marketing stuff, it's such a waste of time. But that's because they were thinking advertising instead of marketing. Marketing's about positioning, it's about messaging, it's about pricing, it's about research, it's about misperception, busting, it's, a, you know, it's about so many things. I actually think that we're in a stage now where, and it's kind of a generational thing as well, where you've got kind of a new generation of chief executives many of whom have done marketing things in their MBAs or their, you know, executive training or whatever, or done marketing degrees for that matter. Yeah. And they they much more understand marketing as a driver of business results. I won't say revenue because it's not always about revenue. It can be about recruitment. It can be about citizen behaviour, whatever. But they kind of get it. So I think marketing actually has a good seat at the table now in terms of business outcomes and making business decisions. But it's incumbent upon marketers to not do the IT thing and use, you know, jargon that they love using yeah. but that nobody else really understands or that makes it sound trivial. It's not trivial. Mm. Communicating with people that are going to be influenced by you or whatever else, I mean, it's the most important thing that you do mm. because you're always driving towards some sort of an outcome. And I guess maybe to come full circle to what you said at the beginning, David, about this business, when you think about the role of government communication where you are trying to drive quite often behaviour change in citizens... Not always an easy thing to do. Mm. Uh, it's massively important. You know, we can't treat it as a trivial sort of thing. And it all comes down to the steps that you take to communicate with people, i.e. the distribution of content, to achieve those outcomes. Mm. Indeed. Well, Pat, we have gone a little over time. Sorry, audience. I do try to keep it to uh, around about the 30-minute mark. But anyway, we can. it was a good chat. So we can keep going. It's my podcast. <laughs> I can do what I like. I can tune out any time <laughs> they like. <laughs> exactly. I did, actually, it was great. I got some feedback the other day. Someone sort of stopped me in the street and said, oh, I listen to your podcast. Really enjoy it. So it was really nice. So thank you. Um, but, yeah, thanks, Pat. Thanks for coming in. Thank um, you. I look Pleasure. forward to drawing on your wisdom to um, continue to assist um, government to communicate more effectively because I think it's never been more important. Um, as we see sort of the r rise of populist movements, you know, across Western democracies. Uh, that might make it sound a little bit sort of, you know, highfalutin, but still it's so important. I think so much of what government does is valuable yeah. and important and relevant and they don't do a great job in explaining themselves. And this is the problem that we're seeking to solve is actually to help them get that story out there so as that they can build these trusted relationships with citizens and stakeholders over time so as that people understand. Now, they mightn't like it, but the best way to deal with not liking something is at the ballot box, mm -hmm. you know. But in those interim periods, whoever is elected, we need to do a good job to tell their story. I'd so go a understand. step further. You know, the debasement of government through these populist movements and so on is yeah. really... It's a serious threat and it is incumbent upon us as communicators, yep. people who work in government, to help government tell its stories better. Yep. It's interesting if you look at the state governments where they're much more focused on service delivery. It seems to be more pragmatic and practical and, you know, whereas for federal government 
it is more about bigger picture, longer term and harder to do probably. Ha- well, you look at the problems around, you know, urbanisation, ageing yeah. uh, populations, digitisation, you know, these major, you know, the future of work. Mm-hmm. You know, these are big complex issues and problems and it takes time to explain to people, well, you know, this is the si- this is the size and scale of the problem, and here are some of the things that we're doing to try to prepare the um, community to be able to deal with some of the disruption that is is headed our way. So, anyway, it's exciting. I love it. I, I can't can't get enough of it. And right. thanks very much for, <laughs> for joining you. us. And thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, Pat Duffy. That was a great conversation. And thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again for another uh, slightly longer version of In Transition. But um, I'm sure it was very well worthwhile for you as it was for me so thanks very much um and we will be back at the same time next week but for the moment it is bye for now you've been listening to in transition the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector for more visit us at contentgroup.com.au